Ozone. Welcome to the Ozone Podcast, featuring Jaguars.com senior writer John Osher and Jaguars executive producer Dave DeCandis. Dave, when we start here, you know, I've gotten some Ozone emails with feedback about the podcast. I had a guy this week tell me, hey, John, love the podcast, which I said, well, of course you do. But I'm tired of talking about the pandemic. Can you get out of the pandemic talk? And I'm thinking, what else is there to talk about? I thought you were going to say, hey, John, love the podcast, but get that other guy off it. I'm, I'm too nice to uh, tell you about those. <laughs> okay. But I think what people don't realize, or maybe they do if they know me, is even in a normal situation, I have very little going on. Like I, I go to work. I come home. I have a few beers. I, I, I pet rats. I'm all like, I'm all like my own. So during the pandemic, my interests whittle down to a frightening, frightening few. I'm, I'm right there with you with two little kids. All I do all right. day is uh, try to think of games and coloring sheets and, and chasing them around. Um, but yeah, yeah no, the same thing. So I don't have kids. Yeah. Coloring is fun. Coloring, <laughs> coloring is fun. Is fun. It's, it's fun. uh, I, I, uh, we're going on what uh, ten weeks of this now. I've probably driven, except out to see my mother who lives in Mandarin. I've probably driven five or six times to the grocery store. I have gotten to be a better shopper. I I now have a vague idea when I walk into Publix or Walmart of sort of where the things are. Like I can vaguely get to the, where the wheat thins are. I have a little bit of an idea that vegetables are in a certain aisle that that cookies aren't always next to the crackers which is always instinctively where i go but beyond that i mean it's a bare minimum of what i've actually done and most of it's been uh, dealing with uh, stuff around the house like life stuff like my son will come home he's 24 and he lives out back in an apartment, not in the backyard, but he, <laughs> he, uh, he lives in a teepee in your backyard. Well, if you're in the apartment, he'd probably live out back, but he'll kind of say, Oh, I've got, I've got to go do something with my car. I guess that I'm like, Jake, that's life stuff. Welcome to life. But the pandemic has been all life stuff. And I know you've got a laundry list. I think I've finally, I've had this weird small leak in the roof that I've been dealing with. I think knock on wood, that's wood. I think I finally got it figured out. It's rained the last couple of days and the last fix seems to have worked. But it's just, uh, I think when you're not doing anything else, those get magnified. Oh, it's yeah. Just working do. home, those stresses get magnified. And because all you're doing all day is looking at all the stuff that's wrong with your house. Yeah. And uh, we just moved, as you know, we moved to uh, Springfield a few miles from the state or about a mile from the stadium. So, September, October, November, I was working during the day, coming home, just sort of dealing with that stuff you do when you get into a new house. And I kind of thought it was over. But then when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden I saw, okay, well, the porch that I was going to put off painting, eh, maybe I'll go ahead and paint. It won't be that hard. Eh, Maybe I'll do the upstairs porch too, because this place we've got, it's kind of cool. We've got four porches upstairs, downstairs, on back, and it's all wood. It's all one of these old houses. And I, I, I bit off the, the porch painting thing, which is a lot of spindles and a lot of small 
it was not a weekend job, Dave. It was yeah. it, it was more than that, but it got done, so that's good. Well, that's good. Yeah, my stuff has been. You've had a litany. Oh yeah, like a laundry list. Like my stuff isn't like uh, like nice like home maintenancey kind of stuff. I'm getting like so we our house bought our house three years ago, four years ago, and you know house was built like in 2000. So we're we're on that 20 year threshold where everything starts to go wrong. So literally the day of the when the pandemic or the day when our office closed down and we're going to be home, water heater breaks, new water heater. Then a week later, our refrigerator breaks. I have to come in, get a guy in to fix our refrigerator, cool. which also refrigerator was a whole nother thing with, because then you got to put stuff in coolers and then you got to, yeah. then you got to defrost the refrigerator for them to work on it. Then after that, oh, minor thing, but still was our toaster oven dies randomly. Who, whoever had a toaster oven that just stopped working? I don't, sure. I don't know. I'm not sure who ever had a toaster oven, but. You ever do the, what, do you have the traditional, like, pop-up toaster? Yeah, you got a toaster. Oh, I got you. All right. Uh, the, then after the toaster oven, uh, our, so, like, my house has been really humid for a little while, and we have uh, one of those deals with an air conditioning company where they do, like, you know, sure. twice a year maintenance, and they're like, hey, your fan's, like, running constantly. I was like, oh, that's not good. So then they had to replace some kind of thing in the air conditioner. It's another, yeah. another expense. And then our neighbors were getting a new roof and you know how the roofers come around and say, Hey, I'll inspect your house. Gops on, on there. Yeah. He's like, you got a ton of storm damage. You need a new roof for hurricane season. So now we're dealing with the roof. So it, uh, well, good news and that's, on that, uh, with insurance, you're not paying. Yeah. But still something you got, yeah, you got to so. deal with it. And so that's been like my 10 weeks. So, uh, enough about, grocery shopping which i'm sure we'll get into because i don't think we're out of the woods yet in terms of a little bit of a stay-at-home thing but this week's guest i'm excited about longtime friend of mine long-term nfl writer the guy who knows the current nfl along with the history of the nfl maybe as well as anybody out there people know him as hall of fame voter longtime sports illustrated writer uh incredible resume incredible knowledge guy with football peter king peter thank you for doing this John, my pleasure. Thanks a lot for talking to me. Tell me quickly what your job has been like during this coronavirus. We're getting a little bit of what you feel about this and where it's headed, but how has your job changed? Um, well, you know, John, I've been a sports writer for 40 years, um, and uh, I, people are going to think this is crazy when I say it, but... Uh, I've really never had as much interesting material to write about and to talk about in that 40 years, because I mean, I, you know, just to pick out two things. um, One of the things I've done over the years now, 10 or 11 times is I've been inside a team's draft room uh, on draft weekend or, or on draft day. And so I really wanted to do that this year with this virtual draft. And so I, I tried hard, but most teams didn't want to have anything to do with me being involved because honestly, John, it, this could have been a, a pretty big mess up, you know? So um, I got Jason Light of the Bucks to agree. And basically I'm sitting on the seventh floor of an apartment building in Brooklyn, New York right now. This is where I've done my job for the last 10 weeks. 
And uh, I was inside the Tampa, Tampa Bay Buccaneers draft uh, maneuverings, draft room, even though it was the toy room in Jason Light's children's ha- house, <laughs> you know, it, it, his, his kid's toy room. But, uh, and, and I covered it and I, and I heard it and I saw it all the way down to one child with a blood curdling mommy scream in the middle of him trying to make a trade with Mike Mayock in the middle of the first round, you know, in Las Vegas. So, I mean, that was really, really different, obviously. Unimaginable. Unimaginable. It's, it's, it's stunning. It's really stunning. And, you know, and then every single week, I have been able to come up with something since the middle of March. I've been able to come up with something that, in my opinion anyway, uh, is just different. And, and you know, I think our job as reporters is to sort of kind of mirror the society we're in at the time, mirror the, the, the place where we are. And we are in an incredible situation right now. And, you know, this week in my column, I'm writing something on the Detroit Lions receiver room, okay? Receiver room, okay? The, the, the coach, a guy named Robert Prince, receiver's coach, is in his house in Jacksonville right now. That's where he's running his Zoom meetings from, okay? He's got receivers stretching from uh, Long Island, New York, to San Diego, California, and all spots in between. He's got a Louisiana. He's got a Bradenton, Florida. He's got uh, an Austin. He's got a Dallas. And so this is how teams are working and how teams are, are coaching right now. And I just find it absolutely, totally fascinating. And it's, it seems like it's only going to get more fascinating as they try to get this thing together and actually have a season. Well, you know, we'll see. Um, you know, John, I mean, as we record this, I just read an item on Twitter where the Pittsburgh Steelers, who, you know, are one of the most uh, – have one of the most intense fan bases in the NFL, are only putting 50% of their tickets on sale this year. Um, wow. because, because they think that that's at max – that's probably the most they'll be able to fit in Heinz yeah. Field with social distancing. So, John, there's a story. How in the world did the Steelers figure out which 50% to sell to and which 50% to say, sorry, see you next year? There's probably people who they're turning down who have been doing it for 35 years. Yeah. And, and also, what about the people who've been going to Steelers games for 30 years and who this year they're told we can't go? How do they feel? Let's find a few of those. So that's what I'm talking about. These stories are incredible, and and only about half of them have to do with the game on the field. It's all this other stuff. And then you add in the normal stuff with, uh, you know, the normal every year stuff in the NFL, you know, where they're, uh, you know, talking now about the possibility of – changing the onside kick to a fourth and 15 play uh, where they're having a monstrous amount of trouble with the Rooney rule and with minority hiring. So you add, you add all the other stuff 
into that. And this is, this is as crazy and interesting an offseason as we've had. I, I, it was now, what, like three weeks ago. I'd been trying to get Dr. Fauci, you know, right. and talk to him for, for my column about what's ahead for football and everything. So one uh, Saturday evening at 530, I, I, get, I got about a half hour notice. Uh, hey, uh, Dr. Fauci is going to call you. So all of a sudden, my column gets ripped up and you're leading with Fauci. So it's just, that's the kind of thing that is, it's, been, it's been so much fun. And I don't, hey, look, fun is a relative term because I wish none of this was happening, obviously, but it's a fascinating time. Now, I remember talking to you, I think it was on the practice field last year here in Jacksonville. And I, I, I almost got the impression from you then that you weren't sure how much longer you're going to do this. You've, yeah. you've been doing this for, but hearing you right now, I don't see you hanging it up anytime soon. I mean, you're excited. You know, I, I, I love this. I, I love this whole thing, John. And, and honestly, I don't anticipate not doing this for a while. I mean, who knows? I got, I got, I think three years left on my current deal with NBC and, you know, we'll see what happens. How, how does anybody know what happens in the future? I mean, I turned 63 in a couple of weeks, so we'll see what I feel like doing. You don't get into this unless you have a love for it. Mm-hmm. And you've been doing it now clearly at the highest level for four decades, but there's still a passion in you about it. What do you love about this? What did, what got you into it in the beginning and what do you still love most about it? Well, at the beginning, what, what really happened was that I was going to be a news reporter. When I was at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, graduated in 79. If, you know, on my first job after internships was working for the Associated Press in Columbus, Ohio. And I just covered whatever I had to cover. Um, and and, and I, if the sports editor of the Cincinnati Inquirer had not called me, and the politics editor of the Columbus Dispatch had called me instead because I was managing editor of my school paper in Ohio. I wasn't the sports editor. I, I, I would have written news and I would have covered politics or something. I don't know what I would have done, but, um, you know, at the time, you just you want a job and you want a job that's going to be fun. And this has been a tremendous amount of fun for me lately and for all of the 40 years I've done it. And you chronicled maybe the most fascinating time. The whole NFL history is fascinating. We both, uh, I'm sure, have followed it and, and read about it. But yeah. the time that you covered it, the growth of this sport, people forget it, it was not the dominant sport maybe in the 80s that it is now. Uh, not at all. In fact, it wasn't even the biggest sport. You know, right. remember, uh, you know, baseball was still king when I, you know, in the early eighties when I started doing this, but I, I think I, and I love baseball and I still do love baseball, but I think the thing I really wanted to do was I wanted to be able to have a family life also. And I think it's easier when you cover football to have a family life. The, the four previous people on the beat at the Cincinnati Inquirer covering, covering baseball um, all were divorced men. And yeah, the life of a baseball beat guy is rough. Yeah. Well, 
in those days too, especially because there was almost, it was almost a Cal Ripken type of job. You know, it was, you, you, it was frowned upon for you to take days off. And um, so even though I did cover some baseball and I had a good time, that was right at the end of the big red machine in Cincinnati. Um, So there were some great characters and it was fun, but I I never saw myself doing that for a living because I just think it's, just think it's really too hard on your family. Outside, you know, I could talk to you about the career forever, but in terms of the NFL, you probably have a better gauge over the big picture of where the league is, where it's headed outside of COVID, which is obviously a different deal. What are the biggest issues you see facing it? And if it's not too general a question, where is it headed? It's the dominant sport. They've got to hang on to that. But, you know, I'm getting at what are some of those issues that you're fascinated with how this league's going to handle? You know, the NFL has to make sure that it is um, that it is consistently and absolutely on top of um, head trauma. <clears throat> That's the biggest issue. There are other simmering issues, you know, the Rooney rule and things like that. But, you know, the dumb pass interference rule they put in last year. The, it was dumb what they put in. But it was dumb. If you're going to put in a rule, you got to officiate it correctly, and they never did. Um, but I think I think I think those things are important. Um, I think the overriding thing is the health of players and the health of the game. Um, I, I think that they've been incredibly fortunate. Think about it. They they have a labor agreement now that stretches basically for the next 11 years. It's unbelievable in modern sports that you can get that done with your union. And so I think it'll continue to be, I think it'll continue to be the dominant sport in America, but I think you have to make absolutely sure that you're still going to have great pools of talent to choose from. And you don't want to get every, you know, uh, you want to have every sector of society to draw from, you know, when you want to get your players. And that's the thing I would be most concerned about if I was the NFL. You've been, again, doing it probably for as long as I've been a fan. Uh, is it a better game now or just different? Or I guess what's the biggest change you've seen in 40 years if there's a way to define that? Well, I think the owners in the NFL have basically been forced to um, – they've been forced to treat the players a lot better than they did when I first started covering the game. Right. And, look, I, I, I covered the game when half the teams were playing on – essentially they were playing on concrete with a rug on it. And uh, now um, no team does that. And right. so that, that I think is a really good thing. I think the other thing that has been really good and the NFL had to basically be drag kicking and screaming to do it is to not only to care a lot more about health and safety, but to also care about sort of the mental well being of players. And that includes making sure that in the off season, you know, I remember after 2011, when the NFL basically gave, uh, you know, pushed back 
the off-season programs to like the middle of April. I'll never forget, there was a linebacker at the time. I think he was playing with Cleveland. He played for several teams, DeQuell Jackson. And DeQuell mm-hmm. Jackson was telling me that what he really wanted, was excited about with this new labor agreement, is he now could finish his degree on campus at Maryland. He was all excited about that in the, in the, in the uh, winter-spring term of 2012, right. he was going to be able to enroll, go to college in College Park, Maryland, and, and stay there for the whole term and actually be a student, be a real student, rather than, you know, maybe go to a few weeks of classes and then, you know, have the professor work out some deal so that, right. you know, you could monitor the classes online or something like that. And I think things like that, even though NFL teams and coaches probably still chafe at that, that's been wonderful. Players get to be real people for a lot longer than in the offseason than they used to. Let me ask you three quick questions, and just kind of give me your first impression when I ask. Uh, best interview source you've had in 40 years? Who's, you, who's the guy you look forward most to covering during that time? I'd say it was probably Brett Favre uh, because I had the kind of relationship with him for six or eight years where, uh, you know, when I, when I would go into Green Bay to cover a game, this was in the days of long game stories for Sports Illustrated. So I'd go in on Friday to Green Bay and I would ignore him during the day working with the Packers. And then that evening – I'd like go over to his house and then we'd go out to dinner with his family somewhere. And, you know, whenever I told him, Hey, I need to ask you these questions. That's when it'd be on the record. Other than that, we're just talking. And so, and he was the best character. He was the most fun. Uh, I did a week in the life of the Packers in 1995 when he was just emerging. I remember Yep. You know, to, to sit in the, 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 Green Bay quarterback room with at that time it was Steve Mariucci as the quarterback coach, Brett Favre, Ty Detmer, and TJ Rubley, and have Favre fall asleep and wake himself up with one of his own farts was just like, you know, that and and he didn't care. He just didn't care. And then at the end of the week, they'd take a test and Favre would kill everybody on the test because he just knew it, you know, right. and, and I, I, I really enjoyed covering him and being around him. Is there a Super Bowl? I know when you guys were covering the Super Bowl or covering a game, it was an event the way you covered it, meaning yeah. you would go in, you'd research it all week. It was a different sort of journalism that I could do. I was, I was at a daily newspaper. Was there an event like that outside the far stories you just talked about that kind of stood out where, where you researched it? You knew you had a great story because you did. You have to really report those to keep other people from getting it. It was a different dynamic than it well. Is now. In in nineteen ninety five, one that stands out. In nineteen ninety five, we uh, we had four people on the team covering the Super Bowl that year, and Rick Tellender was going to write the game story. So our job during the week was to gather and to make sure that after the game depending on who won, we would get something really good. And that was the Steve right. Young six touchdown pass game where he got the monkey off his back and beat the chargers. So I remember I followed him around for 
uh, two hours at the stadium after the game. He did every live shot there was from Chris Berman to Sacramento, you know. And so, uh, and I'll never forget, he was totally dehydrated. The game was in Miami. And at one point he looked to me and he said, Peter, can you find me anything to eat or drink? I'm, I'm dying here. So I went and found him three large Gatorades, some cookies, and an apple. And those three large Gatorades, I'm guessing they were 32 ounces apiece. Uh, he drank those in five minutes. He drank 96 ounces of Gatorade in five minutes. And then he just went on. And so we were leaving the stadium and we get into the back of a car. Lee Steinberg, his agent, is there. And I'm sitting in the back seat. And Young is not looking very good. I'm going to his hotel, you know, to see what goes on with his family celebration. And we're in the back seat of his car. And all of a sudden, an absolute torrent of bright red vomit comes out of his mouth. And it goes, <laughs> lands all over Lee Steinberg's pants and shoes. <laughs> and uh, he, what else could he say? He said, well, I guess I'll never wash these shoes again. And so, you know, but those, those were the kind of stories when you don't have to be consumed, as you said, with sitting there and banging out a game story right after the game. You could actually make sure you hang out with somebody until 2 o'clock in the morning and then go, you know, write your file to Rick Tallender, get it to him by like 4.30 in the morning so that he can have his game story in by nine o'clock Eastern. So those were, those were fun days. They were frustrating days because you would always think, you'd always think, man, more of my stuff should have gotten in, but everybody thought that. And this is a very inside baseball question, but I've, I've always been fascinated by it. Was there ever a time, you know, I, I know you guys would write all night because it was a different sort of deadline. You have to, you'd cover a game Sunday and I think your deadline was early Monday morning, like 6 a.m., did you ever come close to missing it? Were you ever panicking on it? Was that every week? You know what I'm getting at? Because I'd be stressing at 1130 at night, but you guys are doing it at 530 in the morning after a week's worth of work. Is there a story where you just thought, this is going to be awful and I'm not getting it yet? Um, you know, I have a vivid memory of, uh, of the first story I ever wrote for Sports Illustrated was about Boomer Esiason coming off an arm injury. I got to the magazine uh, first week of June, 1989. And um, so you go through all the indoctrination and everything like that. And, uh, and so Boomer, they were going to have me write um, a training camp story, but the lead was going to be on Boomer Esiason. He was coming off an MVP year uh, and losing the Super Bowl, And, and they wanted to know what was going on with Boomer. So uh, I went and hung out with him and his wife for a couple of days in July before they went to training camp. And um, uh, I flew home on a, on, a, on a Northwest Airlines plane to New Jersey. And I was in the terminal and I realized, holy crap, I just left my notebook on the plane. I had not, I had not taped it. And I left the notebook on the plane and it was Saturday late afternoon. My story was due the next morning. My first story for SI. And I was going to go home and write it like all night. And so uh, I spent about three hours at the airport having six heart attacks and realizing that the airport had just, the airplane had turned around 
and left. It went out. It must have got stuck between the seats. Who knows? But nobody ever found it. So I got home maybe about 10 o'clock that night, and I have to pick up the phone and call Boomer and tell him what happened. So at the time, Boomer is on one phone, and his wife Cheryl is on the other phone, and they're wherever they are. I don't remember. And we recreated about two days' worth of conversation in an hour or so. And I sat down and over seven hours just wrote the story. And that I have vivid memories of because I know that that the story, I'm positive the story would have been better had I had all of my original notes. But what are you going to do, cry about it? You can't call up and say, oh, by the way, my dog ate my homework. You know, you just got to kind of move on and and try to recreate it the best way you can. That's fantastic. Very quickly, we've talked about everything else except the Jags. Your final thoughts, leave me with something in terms of how you feel about this team going forward. I mean, you know, they've put an incredible amount of pressure on Gardner Minshew. And uh, I think that particularly because you've got two picks in the top 20, uh, you get rid of Marquise Lee. You don't use either of those on an, on an offensive player. And so there is tremendous pressure on him to come in and to be the guy who they believe that he should be and he, and he can be. And I did an event with him at the Super Bowl this year. I did not, I didn't know Gardner Minshew. And as everyone is, I was charmed by him. How are you not charmed by Gardner Minshew? (laughs) How do you not root for Gardner Minshew? He's just this average guy who is so grateful for where he is and he works hard and, you know, he understands he's got, he has an appreciation for the life he has. And I, I have great, I've got great appreciation for people who are like that, but you know, it's got to, he has to know that he has the fate of a coach, the fate of a general manager, the fate of maybe the long-term future. He's going to be one of the people who decide whatever the long-term future of the Jags are, wherever they are. It's, it's uh, you know, I, I really hope that deep down he has the ability to be that don't worry, be happy guy that he sure looks like he is on the outside. And I don't pull for a lot of people, but I'll be pulling for him. And, and look, you know, there's so many good people in that organization. Um, and it's, it's tough because right now to me, as I look at the, the division they're in, they're number four entering the right. season. And if on January 1st, they're number four, there's going to be an earthquake in that organization. Everybody knows that. So there's a lot of pressure to be good from day one. Plus, you've got to be good from day one in this totally, absolutely bizarre year. So I don't envy Doug Marone and Dave Caldwell and the cons uh, and Minshew, quite honestly, because there's no, there's no excuses. There's no, there's no, well, you know, we had a tough year, uh, you know. There's no more we had a tough year. You just got to get it done. And now the Ozone 5 with Peter King. The Ozone 5. Peter, your last binge watch. Uh, The Crown on Netflix. Jordan or LeBron? LeBron, but for many reasons, 
uh, I like my superstars to have a conscience and to be great, but also to care a little bit about life. That's why I'd take LeBron. Last song you listen to in your car or last station in your car? Uh, probably WFAN in New York, even though uh, I have not been in a car <laughs> for quite a while because, A, I don't own a car, and whenever I have to drive, um, I I rent a car, and I haven't rented one in a while. So, I forgot uh, I was talking to somebody from a different culture. I like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> last chore done around your house? Every morning, uh, I do the breakfast dishes at our house. And every evening, I do the dinner dishes at our house. So because we're recording this in mid-afternoon, I would have to say the last chore happily was doing the breakfast dishes. I love the sense, the little tiny sense of accomplishment you get (laughs) from doing dishes. I like it. And your go-to takeout, which will be different for somebody in Jacksonville, but your go-to takeout when you guys do takeout. It would be pizza at a place called Oleostro's in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, that would be... I, I change a lot with my takeout. I might get into different kinds of takeout at times, but, man, I'm jonesing for an Oleostro's pizza right now. Peter, I could talk to you all day. I know you have to go, and... Uh... I can't thank you enough for doing this, and I look forward to when we can do it again. Hey, thanks a lot, John. It was a lot of fun. I'd like first to thank Peter for giving us some time, and that's never taken for granted because uh, people are busy, and even to hop on for 45 minutes or an hour is a lot, even during this time. And I I always like talking to Peter. I'll be honest, Dave, when I first got into business in 95, Peter King was already a big, big name. Maybe not quite as big as he is now, but he was with Sports Illustrated. He would come into town, and I'm, you know, wet behind the ears, 28-year-old. I covered Florida for a couple of years, but didn't know people within the league. And the thing that I think people or, or that uh, people like when they listen to Peter is he really is a good guy and very uh, – that's what I'm looking for. I would think if a fan who's never met him walks up and wants to talk about the NFL, Peter's going to give that person the same amount of time as he would the commissioner, so to speak. And that's probably exaggeration. He's going to give you that a lot of time. But point being, he, he truly loves his job. I think most people who are listening to us, Dave, have probably read the Monday Morning Quarterback over the years. If you're an NFL fan, that's even in these days where not everything's a must-read anymore. That is. And I think what comes across in the MMQB, and it's not that anymore, but what he does for NBC now is he likes taking you behind the scenes. He likes the reporting process. He doesn't try to put it on a pedestal. And he really takes people inside and he likes sharing his life with people. And I think it comes across in the column. Yeah, the money, money quarterback is it's kind of appointment reading. I think. Uh... If you're in the NFL or if you work in the NFL or even if, you know, you're, you're a big fan. And now whatever the new iteration of it is with right. NBC Sports, I, I still at least scan it every week. It feels when you read it like he's just talking to you and he just happens to, hey, I talked to the head coach of, uh, of the Bills after his win last night. And I talked to the commissioner last week and I talked to this fan, talked to this fan. 
and there's never very much effort into reading it. It feels like it's something that he just kind of threw together on a Sunday night after watching some football. Well, let me tell you, that's hard. He rarely misses on what the best story to write that week is. And that's, uh, that ain't easy. You can speak from your background in TV, the same deal. Knowing yeah. what's important that day, that's 95% of it. And Peter does a great job at that. Yeah, he's almost turned into the, uh, there's probably some, a, a better way to say this, but the, he's the go-to guy on the, the reporting of news. And, uh, well, he has the perspective because he's talked to Roger Goodell. He's talked to the key players around the league enough that he can kind of speak to what they're probably thinking. Uh, and also as much, as much influence he has on the Hall of Fame and what he says and, and how, he, how he lifts up the Hall of Fame and how uh, he's pretty open about how the process works. I think that's really cool. And I think, too, is every time he's come to Jacksonville, you know, I've been in around him a little bit and been in groups and have helped him shoot some stuff back when he was with Sports Illustrated. And it was always very nice, very cordial. Um, talk to you, would talk to you, and I appreciate that. Probably TV and radio, the movies over the years have created this image of the grizzled reporter who's a great reporter because he's kind of a jerk. My experience is most great reporters aren't jerks because most people don't like to talk to jerks. Yeah, it's true. And I can remember way back, 97, 98, he would come into town SI and always ask the reporters who were there closest to the team what was going on with the team because he knew they knew it better than he did. Uh, but always a feeling of caring about getting the story right. And uh, you can be as good a reporter as you want, but if you're not taking the information that you receive and striving to be as accurate as possible with that information, and not all of them do, then you're not doing your job. And he does a great job with it. So it's uh, it was great to have him on. And it was uh, great, as always, to have the Ozone Podcast. We appreciate David Candace. We appreciate uh, producer Joe Fortunato. We will be back again next week, and we will try not to suck. <laughs>